Hey everybody, welcome to the Inspire Podcast. This is Matt. And this is Brad. We are the pastors of Inspire Church in Westfield, Indiana. If you want to stay up to date with everything that's happening around here, be sure to subscribe to our text updates by texting the keyword INSPIRE. That's N-S-P-I-R-E to 317-451-4111. We hope the following message inspires you to take the next step in your faith journey. Well, good morning and welcome again to Inspire. We are so glad you chose to join us. And we are in a series titled Win the Day. And if you aren't aware, we kicked this off last week. Uh, This is a book that was just released by a friend of mine named Mark Batterson. Uh, He pastors a church in Washington, D.C. And it's really the springboard for a conversation that really helps us start this new year. And we're hoping it starts us off strong. As we evaluate at the beginning of a year, lots of times what happens is people are thinking to themselves, what can I do with my life? What do I want to do? And we, we set out like New Year's resolutions and all sorts of things uh, that are goals for the new year. And one of the things that's quite interesting, I read this a few years ago uh, in uh, Forbes magazine, uh, by the end of January, 75% of the people who have already failed or have already failed to keep their New Year's resolutions. Like it doesn't take us very long to quickly stop or pull the plug on our New Year's resolutions. We have plans, we have dreams, and quickly we just stop. And one of the things that happens, or one of the reasons why this happens, is we have uh, a long uh, timeline in which we think that we're going to try to get stuff done, and the likelihood of us keeping things intact for a whole year is quite difficult. If you were to shrink it down into a month, it might be a little bit more realistic. Or if you were to go six months, but a month's even more realistic. A week is quite possible. But if I were to ask you, could you do something for the day, the odds of you being successful increase tremendously. Because you can do anything for a day, can't you? I mean, you you can cut that Coke out of your diet. You can skip a meal. You could fast for a day. There's all sorts of things that you can do. Uh, for one day, and that's what we're trying to talk about. Rather than focusing on all these uh, big things, long timelines, what if we just focused in on the day? And I believe that the reason why we, this is worth pursuing is because Jesus says that he wants to have life for us. He has life for us. John 10, 10, Brad talked about this last week. This is like one of my favorite verses of all time. John 10, 10, Jesus says, I have come that you may have life and life to the full. Like that's the, that's the dream, that's the initiative, that's what he's after for us. And the way we live life to the full is to be fully present in the current moment. You see, if we're honest with ourselves, we don't always do the best at living life in the moment, do we? Oftentimes, we find ourselves stuck in the past or anxious about the future, and we miss out on the moment because we're living in the wrong time zone. You see, this series, we're going to talk about what we can do with the things that are clearly at hand. We want to talk about focusing on the inputs rather than outputs. Like sometimes when goals are things that get accomplished, those are the outputs. But what if we focused in on the things that we're putting into the day? What what if we focused in on what we could do right now, right here during this day? See, we want to win the day. And how do we win the day is a good question, right? Now, Mark Batterson in his book, he says this. How we win the day, for starters, we have to define the win. What's important now? Identify the lead measures that will produce the results you want. Establish daily rituals that will make your life more meaningful. Break bad habits by establishing good habits. Then, 
habit stack those high-yielding habits in a way that will pay dividends down the road. Now this series, we're going to identify seven habits that can help us win the day. And each week, we're going to choose one new habit. And I love this phrase that he says, habit stack, because to be honest with you, adding like seven new habits to your life is a lot. But what if you could learn one habit over a period of time, and once you've got that thing kind of mastered, or you've worked through that habit, you go to the next one, and you start habit stacking, adding new ones to your life each day. And I believe it really will help us win the day. So perhaps as we go through this, it's time to, rather than thinking about adding seven new things to your life, each week maybe we add one, or maybe you just, over a period of time, you're going to choose one to focus on for six months, but each week we'll have one, and I invite you to try to wrestle with that one over this coming week. Now the habit that we're going to be talking about this morning is the habit, and it's the second one in this book titled, Kiss the Wave. Now to unpack this habit, I want to share a story with you that John tells us uh, in, his, in his telling of the gospel. Uh, you might remember the, the Passover meal where Jesus is there with all of his disciples. They're all sitting around the table. It's kind of at the tail end of his ministry there with his disciples. He's got all of his guys around the table. And this is how Jesus kind of starts to teach them and talk to them about what's coming next. He says this in John chapter 13, verse 33. He says, My children, I'll be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so, that, so you must love one another. I imagine his disciples are thinking, so, Jesus, we've heard this before. You've been talking about this love stuff for a while. Like, we will do our best to love one another. He says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. I've taught on this passage so many times. Like This is like the heartbeat of what it means to follow Jesus. If you want to know, if people are going to, in the world are going to know what, if you're one of Jesus' disciples, it's going to be that by the way you love. Now, I imagine his disciples like, Jesus, we got this. We got this. Now, there's one disciple that I always love just kind of seeing in the scripture. His name's Peter. Uh, Peter's like a go-getter. Uh, if I were to guess, he's probably like a three on the Enneagram, if you know what that means. Like they're achievers. Uh, they they want to they accomplish something and they want to show uh, that they can achieve whatever is being asked of them. And so here's Peter uh, continuing on. Now Jesus has just given like this great little teaching. And I imagine Peter's like, wait a second, I'm, he's not even paying attention to half what Jesus is saying. He's so caught up on something else that Jesus said that he can't get with what Jesus is really trying to teach them. It's like Jesus got a lesson and Peter's lost over here. Now Peter... Uh, Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Uh, I imagine Peter thinking, this doesn't make any sense to me. These, uh, all, of his, all these guys here, Jesus has been following you for years. We've, that's what a, the disciple does. We follow the rabbi. We've been following you. What do you mean we can't go where you're going? We follow you everywhere. Now Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? He's out laid down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, Will you really lay down your life for me? He says this, Very truly I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Now, you may be like, able to see this story. You've probably heard this story before. But like, I imagine Peter sitting in that moment thinking, Jesus is crazy. Like, Peter's so confident. He's like, 
Jesus, I've been following you. Don't you remember? I'm the disciple who walked on water just a little bit. You know, I, I'm the guy who's been following you everywhere. I'm, I will follow you to the end. I will never, I would never disown you. And Jesus is like, no, no, you will. You'll disown me three times before the rooster crows. Now, I see myself sometimes in Peter, and I don't, I, I don't know, maybe you do this, but when I read the scriptures, I try to put myself in the positions of the people who are, uh, who are there, just to try to maybe feel the way they might feel. Um, and I imagine Peter's like really optimistic, uh, and we all kind of do this, don't we? Like when we look into our future, we like have a way of kind of feeling like we know what the, might, the future might hold, even though we don't truly know. We have a way of like looking into the future with a, through a lens, uh, and a lot of times we know our future has certain things or how we might respond because we've seen things in our past. This is why some of us are optimistic. Some of us are fearful. You've experienced something that created a little bit of fear in you. I, uh, I am not a big fan of deep water any longer. I used to be like overly confident in water. And I had this, I've told this story before. I had this experience with my buddy, Andrew. I was like so confident. We're going to swim way out there to the sandbar. We got way out there. And it was like, this sandbar did not exist. And I got so tired from swimming out there that I was like worn out. And, uh, I had like, I had like these moments like, man, a lie. This is the worst idea I've ever had. And it's created in me like this sense of doubt of how great of a swimmer I am. And my, uh, my, uh, my confidence in the ocean has like just completely tanked because I had this bad experience. Uh, and so like my past shapes how I feel about the future and the present and all sorts of stuff. Like your, your past circumstances change the way you approach your present and even your future. And like Jesus tells Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And I imagine Peter thinking, there's no way in the world this is going to happen. Now, you may know the story. John continues on and tells us that, like literally, uh, Peter is with uh, John. They go and they follow Jesus, who's now being questioned before the, the leaders in the city. And some people are there in the crowd, and they come up to Peter and say, hey, you were one of those guys that was Jesus. And he freaks out. And he's like, no, I wasn't. I wasn't with Jesus. And Later, uh, John gives us this detail. He's standing by a fire, and he's trying to warm up, and another person by the, the fire asking, wait a minute, I, I know you. I feel like you were one of those guys with Jesus. And he says, no, I wasn't. And then a few minutes later, while he's still standing by that fire, a little girl, I think, comes up. I might get the order out. of. It might have been the girl the second time, but a little girl comes up and is like, you're with Jesus, weren't you? And he like, gets so angry that they keep trying to associate him with Jesus that he like curses, and he, he makes a big scene. And then immediately once he denies Jesus the third time, John tells us that a rooster crows. Like it's like immediately Peter is reminded of what John or what Jesus had said to him earlier in the book of John. And he says, listen, you were going to deny me three times before this rooster crows. And as soon as he denies Jesus the third time, a rooster crows. Now I imagine it shattered Peter. I mean, this is his experience. He was, I was the most confident disciple. I was the guy who walked on water. I was one of Jesus' closest disciples. And now I've denied him three times. I can imagine what has happened now is shaping the way he's approaching his future, the way he feels about himself in the present. You know, we all know that life happens, right? Like there's life happening around us all the time currently, right? But we also all know that life has happened. 
There's things that have happened to us. And the way we step into the future is shaped so much by the things that have already happened in our past. And our knowing about our present and our future is shaped so much by our past experiences. And not all of the decisions were things that were ours. Like, yeah, you may have regrets. You may have made some bad decisions that shape who you are. You've also had some things that were like your greatest successes that have shaped your optimism. You might have had past experiences that honestly you had no control over. There were things that happened to you and they shape you. They affect how you see your life and the trajectory of where you're going. One thing that's interesting is we store our past actually in our bodies. And what I mean by that is there's this neuroscientist named Wilder Penfield. Wilder Penfield was a neurosurgeon and early on in his, uh, in his studies, he was uh, doing some, um, some experiments in, in uh, his field of study, and he found that by stimulating different parts of the, uh, his patients' brains with just a mild electrical current, Penfield found that his patients actually experienced these vivid flashbacks of their past. Like, for one of his patients, he, like, he stimulated a part of her, her brain, and she remembered every note of a symphony that she'd heard many years ago. Or another patient, when he did this, uh, that person could recall every train car that they saw in a childhood memory by, with detail. It's like they could see it all over again. You know, when you hear a song or see a picture or smell a certain scent or have a certain experience, a line called an engram, an engram is traced on the surface of your cerebral cortex. And if you hear that same song, or see that same picture, that same smell, that line is retraced. And with each repetition, the memory is more and more deeply ingrained until that song, or that picture, or that memory is literally engraved on the surface of your cerebral cortex. Isn't that interesting? See, every memory that captures your attention is stored in your brain. See, our memory of the past, it is a gift from God. But, as Mark Batterson says, says our memory is a gift from God, but it comes with a caveat. We don't always remember accurately. The facts, uh, uh, this fact reminds us that memory is both selective and subjective. As such, it can be a blessing and a curse. When we remember yesterday the wrong way, we live a lie. And living a lie undermines our ability to win the day. Sometimes we misremember. We over-elaborate on certain details. Other times we try to forget things that happen because we don't, want, we don't want to block them out or deny that they ever happened. But the past can be quite painful. Some of us wrestle with things like depression that are based from things that have happened to us in our past. One guy, uh, one doctor I read said that depression is basically just a disproportionate memory of current, or uh, I'm sorry, it's a disproportionate measure tied to grief. Basically, you have grief that's happening in your life, and we can over uh, amplify that, and that can lead us into depression. And all these things are natural, they happen, or they have happened. 
And one of the things that can happen when you attend a church or you're part of a faith community, something like Inspire, is we are trying to figure out what it means to follow a guy named Jesus, and we're trying to, to do the right things and act the right way, and we all want to look like we have it together, or we're at least trying to have it together. And you begin to act like a Christian. You want to put on the right actions. And there's nothing wrong with that necessarily, uh, because we're supposed to bear fruit, and we're trying to, uh, we're trying to live life well and live life at its best. But remember, life happens to us. And sometimes you can act really well, and as life starts to happen, and things jump up and surprise us, uh, figuratively and literally, you find yourself reacting. And when you react to certain circumstances, uh, what I found is that our reactions... They are revealing. They tell us what's truly happening in our hearts. So, see, something's happening just below the surface. Something's happening in your brain and, or something's affecting you and you, you can act a certain way, but then all of a sudden you react. And it may, some people say, well, I reacted out of character. And sometimes we do. Other times it's revealing what's really in our hearts. This is why we yell. This is why we, you may freak out. This is why when I get in deep water, I don't exactly like it all of a sudden. <clears throat> like, you can, you can try to bury it down deep inside. But when you find yourself in certain circumstances, you will react or you can react. And it reveals what's going on. Now, I believe God wants to transform us, and He wants to give us, like He said, that life that's at its best. And for some of us, uh, the difficulty or the pain or the obstacles that we've experienced are the things that are keeping us from experiencing life at its best. Another way you could say this is, is like some of us, we think that the obstacle uh, is the problem, but the obstacle is not the enemy. In fact, the obstacle is the way. And this is where our habit, kiss the wave, comes in. Sounds like a weird phrase, right? First of all, you've ever tried to kiss a wave? I already told you I'm not in love with water, so I'm not, be, I'm not kissing any waves. Uh, but waves hit us, right? You ever been out in water that's really, really crazy? I remember before I had my situation with water, I lived in Florida, and we'd go out in the storms when the waves were coming in and have a blast. Uh, like, just stupid stuff we would do. Um, waves hit us, they beat us up. And this phrase, like kissing the waves, is talking like embracing your past, owning what has happened. You know, you kiss the wave by owning your past. You see, I said this earlier, but it, the truth is, you may not be responsible for what happened to you. There's been some of the things that have happened to us that we would have never chosen. It was a legit wave that came in, and it was a tidal wave, and we, someone took advantage of us, someone hurt us, Someone uh, took a, abused us in a way. Um, you may not be responsible for what happened to you, but you are response-able, meaning you can learn, you can grow, and you do have the ability to respond to the things that have happened to you. And when we learn, when we are honest about our failures or our faults, maybe the things that we did, something you did, uh, or something that's happened to us as we start to process that. Uh, one great question as we start to wrestle with what it means to kiss the wave uh, is this. What is this here to teach me? See, being honest with ourselves and others is like a form of confession. And sometimes there's things in there that this thing's trying to teach us. And as we start to articulate what we're learning from the experiences that we've gone through or the things that we're going through currently, 
We start to confess those to others. We start to share those with God. It has this way of, of being uh, healing us in a way. You know, you've heard that confession is good for the soul. When you start to talk about what you're learning, talk about what you've experienced, talk about what you did being honest with you, with it, or honest with others about what's happened, is a way of transforming us. Now, I say that, and it makes me think of this story with Jesus, where Jesus is walking with some of his disciples, and there's this guy who's, who's lame, it says. He can't walk. And Jesus walks up to him and says, Do you want to get well? Now, when I first hear that, I think, Man, Jesus, like, have a little bit of tact. Of course he wants to get well. Nobody wants to be laying there on the side of the road by themselves. Like, no one wants to be a cripple. And Jesus is like, do you want to get well? And if you think about it, it's quite a profound question. Like, what he's asking them is, like, do you, I can help you. But the question is, do you want it? Do you want the help I can offer you? Or would you rather continue to lay here? Or maybe for you, it's, do you want to get over this? Do you want to move past? Do you want to heal? Or would you rather continue to be angry? Would you rather to just continue to be frustrated or sad or hurt or addicted? I mean, do you want to get well? See, if you're going to flip the script, if you're going to tell a different story uh, than maybe the things that have already been told in your past, uh, what you have to come to terms with is the pain of staying the same has to be greater than the pain of change. And what I mean by that is you have to be willing to endure the pain of change uh, because staying the same is too big of an ordeal. I cannot stay like this. I'll do anything but continue to live this way. Do you want to get well? Mark Batterson says this in his book. He says, All too often we undermine our own healing instead of participating in it. Yeah, God can deliver you in a day, no doubt. But you've got to back up that deliverance with daily habits that fortify your newfound freedom. Before you can flip the page on the past, you need to give the past a proper burial. You need to wrestle with it. You need to wrestle it to the ground sometimes. And then you need to be willing to leave it behind, bury it, be done with it. Uh, remember the story of Jacob? Jacob was one of the sons of Abraham. And uh, Jacob... I mean, his story is uh, a huge uh, pillar within the Hebrew faith. Jacob is the one who had the, the dream of Jacob's ladder. And uh, remember, he comes and he goes and lives with his uncle. And he comes back and uh, he inherits the promised land. He's there with He's got all of his people with him. And after 22 years of life, life happening to him, he returns to this place called Bethel. And uh, you know quickly that he has already processed his past because he's already changed his name. He's accepted this new name. He's no longer called Jacob, but now he's called Israel. And, he, and when he arrives at Bethel after 22 of 20 years, two, excuse me, 22 years of living life, he builds an altar, and then he holds what I would call a funeral. He has all of his family members who have gathered all these idols over the years, and he buries all these idols that his family has accumulated. And he buries them there underneath this tree in this specific location. Because this location is where his, his grandfather, Abraham, uh, first built an altar to God. It was like holy ground. And what you see is like Jacob has looked through the lens of the present back at his past. And he has connected dots and seen 
how God was working, how God was leading him, how God was growing him, all of the things that God had provided for him. He'd seen all the blessings that, they were, that were disguised. He'd seen all of his pain and all the things that had happened to him through a new lens. And he was flipping the script, but then also he was embracing those things and he was making a new commitment saying, hey, I've connected these dots and I can say without a doubt that God is present, God has been faithful in my life and I'm going to move forward. So this is the story uh, of Jacob there at Bethel and it makes me think of this. Is there something that you need to end its control over you? Is there something in your past that you haven't wrestled with, you haven't dealt with, and it continues to kind of resurface or it continues to control you? If so, perhaps maybe now's the time to bury it, to give it a funeral, like to embrace it, if you will, like kiss the wave, embrace it, but understand that it's changing you and it's, it's changed you and rethink how you think about those issues. Now, when I say bury it, I don't mean like shortcutting the grieving process, because if you do that, it will prevent your healing process. But I do believe that God can put your past six feet under. You just got to resist the urge to dig it back up. Uh, you may remember the end of John's telling of the gospel, you know, in John chapter 21, where uh, uh, this is after Peter, or after Jesus has resurrected from the dead. He's appeared to his disciples a few times, and there's kind of this weird uh, time in, in this, the telling of this, the Gospels where the disciples are still trying to, kind of waiting and in limbo, trying to figure out what's next. And uh, in John chapter 21, Peter tells a few other disciples that he was going to go fishing. Now he gets those, a few disciples decide to join him, and so they go out and they go fishing all night, and they don't catch anything all night, to which I've, done, I've been fishing enough times to know that if you don't catch anything, it sucks. So there they are out there in the boat, and they're dropping their nets in the water. They're not catching anything. And they're close enough to shore that someone yells out to them from the shore. And the scripture tells us that it's Jesus. Jesus yells out to them, and like a uh, Monday morning quarterback, you know, uh, he's yelling out to them, why don't you try the other side of the boat? To which I imagine these experienced fishermen, part of them were like, yeah, shut up, dude. We've been fishing all night. Going from here to there is not going to change how many fish we catch. But they decide to do it anyways. And so they drop their nets on the other side of the boat. And you may know the story. They catch tons and tons of fish, so much so they can't even pull it back into the boat. And the scriptures tell us, because remember this is John, John always refers to himself in, the, in his telling of the gospel as the one that Jesus, who uh, Jesus loved, kind of like saying he's Jesus' favorite. So uh, he says the one who, uh, who was Jesus' favorite yells out into the boat and says, It's the Lord! And when Peter hears that phrase, he jumps, he grabs his clothes, he jumps into the or out of the boat into the water and swims to shore. Remember that story? Well, it ends with Jesus having a conversation with Peter. And basically what he's doing with Peter is he asks him, he says this, Peter, do you love me? Now this is an interesting question because remember Peter's experiences here. Used to, I think, Peter would answer that question with all sorts of vibrato and be like, yes, absolutely, I love you. You should know this. I got out of the boat and walked on water with you. Yes, Jesus, I've been beside you when you fed the five. Th yes, of course. And you think about all of his experiences. I imagine that would have shaped how he responded. But in this situation, Peter's probably a little bit hurt, a little bit broken. Remember, he denied Jesus 
three times after he said he would never do that? And Jesus says, hey, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And then Jesus says, well, feed my sheep. And then he asks him a second time, Peter, do you love me? And I imagine him saying, well, you just asked me this. Yes, I love you. I love you, Jesus. Probably with a little bit of like heartbreak. Like, yes, I love you. I, I need you even. And uh, he tells him, okay, go feed my lambs. And then the third time he says, Peter, do you love me? And it's this, John tells us that the third time that G, uh, Jesus asked Peter this, Peter was hurt because he kept asking him, do you love me? See, Jesus knew what he was doing. Peter was probably wondering if Jesus doubted his love and maybe even triggered for him a bit of doubt inside of Peter himself. Uh, but Jesus was up to something. Like Peter was probably wondering, yeah, I do love you. I hope the next time I get into a bad situation, I don't fail again. You know, he's probably reliving a little bit of his failures. And as Jesus keeps asking, it's almost like he's rubbing his face in his failures. And Jesus keeps asking. Now, something that's interesting here, and I'm sure you've already put, connected these dots, but Peter denies Jesus three times, and three times Jesus restores him by asking, do you love me? Three times, and Peter responds, yes. This moment, this interaction between Peter and Jesus was like a catalyst that propelled Peter forward. His failure, you know, denying Jesus, prepared him to lead and to be brave and courageous. He was a, a pillar for the early church. You may not know this, but like the, the Catholic Church thinks that, or they, they shouldn't say it that way, but they, they connect the Pope, uh, they believe connects all the way back to even Peter being the first leader of the church. Like Peter was a pillar of the faith as the church moved forward. He stood in the face of adversity. He led courageously. You see, when Jesus restored Peter, it changed him. It reshaped the way he thought of his past. And do you remember when John says this took place? Well, this whole situation takes place? Well, in John 24, or 21, verse 4, uh, John says this, Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, and the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. This is the verse that he, he uses to begin this telling of the story. Right after this, he says, throw your nets in the water. Early in the morning. Well, that's when roosters crow, right? You see, what used to trigger guilt, the morning. I, I remember one time uh, growing up, uh, I stayed at my grandpa's house. My grandpa had chickens. And uh, I sleep with a fan now, so I don't hear all sorts of noises around me. Because uh, living in the vinyl village, your neighbors are up and moving around. They mess you up in the morning, right? But uh, when I was a kid, we'd stay at my grandpa's house, and it was silent in there, except for grandpa's snoring. And he had chickens. And I remember when we'd wake up, this, he had a rooster that would crow in the morning. It was so annoying. Like if you grew up in a, in a culture where chickens were around and there was a rooster around, those things crow like crazy in the morning. And I kind of imagine Peter, now maybe I'm over-elaborating on this a little bit, but I kind of imagine every morning when the rooster would crow, it would be like a little guilt trigger for Peter. Like a daily reminder of his failure his denial of Jesus. But Jesus wasn't going to allow that to continue for very long. Jesus steps in, restores him early in the morning. And now what was a daily reminder of his guilt is a daily reminder of God's amazing grace for Peter. 
You see, connecting these dots, in your story, I believe that God's doing much of the same stuff. There's things that have happened that I believe that God is trying to help you see his provision. He's trying to set you free from. He wants to retell your story through his grace. And I believe that as you do so, it can transform who you are, where you're going, and what your future is going to look like. There's a pastor named Charles Spurgeon. Uh, He was a pastor who wrestled with depression, but he was also like one of the most influential leaders in the early church. He's the one that made this phrase, he said this phrase, he goes, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. He knew that his depression and his, uh, um, some of the things that he was wrestling with were something that he needed to embrace because as they came into, and they, they collided with Jesus, who was known, one of the things was the rock of ages, one of the names given to Jesus. When his past and this wave uh, collides with Jesus, it changes everything. See, the way to win the day is to kiss the wave. Embrace the things that have tried to steal and kill and destroy your life. Allow Jesus to speak into those things, covering you in his amazing grace. So may you see all your faults and failures through the lens of honesty. May you embrace your past and post uh, like, uh, like post-imagine what has happened. And may your embrace uh, of these valuable lessons that you've learned change you and transform you. And as God reveals to you all of the ways that he's been present through those circumstances, may it inspire you to win the day. Let me say a word of prayer for us. Lord, we come to you now, we recognize that our stories are filled with all sorts of chaos and craziness in our pasts, and we recognize we need you. Lord, give us the strength and the wisdom to look at our past through the lens of your grace. Lord, for some of us, we need to be set free. Some of us, we need to be relieved. Some of us, uh, we need to be inspired. And so, Lord, today, as we choose to wrestle with this habit of kissing the wave, Lord, may it transform us so that as we deal with yesterday, it can no longer affect today. We can't win the day if we're controlled by yesterday. And so, Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the fact that each new day, your mercies are made new. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in the Westfield area, we'd love to see you at one of our weekend gatherings. For directions and more information about our services and family ministries, check out our Facebook page or visit us online at www.inspire.church.